This is going to be our first podcast and from Running Light Ministries, and my name is Bo Willette. My name is Peter Martin. And we're going to talk um, about um, sex. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> well, we talk about more than just that. <laughs> but we're going to talk about um, the Bible and sex and, um, and how to break free and um, our culture. Um, things like that, that um, all of us deal with when it comes to the issues of um, sexual immorality. Um, and so that's why we're doing the podcasting. We thought it would be a good idea to kind of share our thoughts uh, in a little more detailed way that sometimes we're not able to do when we're just doing a two-minute video or something like that. So hopefully this podcast will be um, something you guys can download and listen to and really enjoy and kind of get into some of the biblical texts that we are going to bring up and how it helps us in our freedom because that's really what everything is really about with us is is just staying free from the bondage to uh, pornography and things of that nature and living a life that's honoring God and glorifying God. So it might be good to start the podcast um with just talking about really what we mean by glorifying God. Because I, I got an email, Peter, this week. I think you got it too. But it was from one of our friends, and um, and she asked us about, like, the glory of God, you know, and kind of she was wondering, like, what does that really mean? Hmm. You know, and she couldn't quite kind of figure it out, you know. What were your thoughts on that when you got that email? Yeah, I think that that's kind of a kind of a hazard in the Christian life. I don't think a lot of us really know what that means, even though we throw that word around a lot. I know even growing up in the church, I used to talk about the glory of God. I used to listen to pastors talk about the glory of God, but I never really stopped and, and thought about it in a practical way. And uh, I mean, I guess the most basic thing that we'd have to do is we'd have to define glory. And I mean, all, all the meaning of glory is, and uh, I think John Piper puts it best when he says, everyone knows what glory is when it comes to sports, but when you come to church, you immediately forget. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's such a good point, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like if, I, if I'm watching a football game, you know, you can't even listen to ESPN for too long before they talk about a glorious pass or a glorious touchdown or the glory that was on the field. So everyone, when, when sportscasters are saying that, nobody's lost. Like they all know what that means. And all it's talking about is like the beauty, the excellence, the awesomeness, uh, the the coolness that they're seeing. Uh, but when we come to church and people talk about the glory of God, we tend to think it's a different thing, and it's not. You know, when we say the glory of God, we're saying the same thing, his beauty, his excellency, his majesty, uh, his preeminency, uh, and everything that goes along with his very nature and value. Uh, and so, Bo, what, what does it mean to actually glorify, though? Yeah, I mean, I I have gotten a lot from um, Watson's writing, and Watson Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and he wrote something. Um, it's called "A Man's Chief End Is to Glorify God," and we've all heard this before. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, and of course, that was Piper's kind of statement if you will for his book desiring god and uh, which is really a powerful book um but watson brings about four specific principles um when it comes to glorifying god that i've always found really cool and he talks about glorifying god consists of four things appreciation adoration affection and subjection 
that that's how we actually glorify God. He he breaks it up into this four. It could be probably into a lot more. You could probably get even more uh, detailed and tricky. But I think that's a a good place to start. You know, um, you know, we glorify God by appreciating Him. You know, by adoring Him, by thinking, man, He's awesome. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then He talks about affection, having our affections before God, mm-hmm. and then being subjective. Uh, subjected to him. So putting ourselves under his rule. And those are all ways that we show in a real simple term, the value I think of God. And so sometimes when I think of glory, Peter, I think of value. I mean, that's kind of comes to my brain. You know, does it, is that how it works with you? Yeah. I think like, uh, especially recently, uh, now that I've gotten married, I, I tend to think of it that way uh, a lot more of like, if I wanted to show my wife, uh, that I think of her as beautiful, as excellent, as awesome. You know, like what what are the things that I, I need to do in order to accomplish that? You know, and uh, obviously spending time with her is huge. Talking to her, praising her, telling her that she that I love her, that I care for her, mm-hmm. uh, and all these things they all go into glorifying, uh, in a way, quotes around that glorifying my wife. And in the same way, it's like. If God is a relational being, if Jesus truly did take on flesh and become a man and dwell among us, and, and he is a resurrected man that we can have a relationship with him, then it would only stand a reason that to glorify Jesus would be about the same thing. You know, That's why we uh, spend time with him in prayer and at church. That's why we sing praise and worship songs to him. And all these things, we are glorifying God. We are showing his value uh, to him and to those around us. That's really the the whole point of why we do everything that we do. Yeah, and it's it's another good point, and that is, um, you know, Christianity puts such a stress on relationships, and especially the relationship we have with God. And um, and obviously we don't see God, and 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 so we're told uh, in the Bible that God manifests Himself through His people, and it's within He says the body of Christ, which is defined as the church. So as we draw closer to the church, we draw closer to Christ. I mean, I think of it this way too. Like, I mean, if we want like a proof text, we could look at Paul the apostle, who wasn't the apostle at this time, but when he was persecuting the church and he gets on the road to Damascus and he gets knocked off the horse and everything, you know, the voice, the heavenly sound uh, language that he hears or what it says is, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so we see that Jesus is the one being persecuted, though it was the church that was being persecuted. So there's that link, that relational link between Jesus and the church. So if, if you want to glorify God, you know the terms that we see that it, the, the the Bible's using are relational ways we do it. Um, obviously, we don't see Jesus in our house. We don't walk up to him and and practice adoration and you know subjection and all that to him. Um, but we do it in the sense in the body of Christ, where in the church we start seeing Christ manifest himself through the people that are within the church and through his word that is taught. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, um, you know, hopefully that helps. You know, one of the things that that's kind of interesting too is, you know, you know, I think of like, uh, I was thinking of a passage, Isaiah forty-eight eleven. it says, my glory, I will not give to another. 
And there's a part of God where he's where he has like an intrinsic glory that he won't share with anybody. There are passages in the Bible where where the glory of God flees Israel. You know, it's like it departs from Israel, which is which is interesting, I think, too. Um, But God in his own nature, it's like he, he will not depart from this glory that is his. And it's and it's self-sufficient in a, in in a, of himself. Meaning, if no one glorified God, the Bible paints a picture that God's not going to be like upset or whiny or bummed out, you know, at it. Um, that he is okay within himself, and um, you know, so I find that kind of interesting too. That when we glorify God, it's not like we have to glorify God. It's not like um, some people, I think, get that feeling when they go, "Hey, you know, you know, you guys always talk about, you know, how to break free from pornography and all this stuff. The first thing is to glorify God. Is your heart set to glorify God?" And a lot of people, I think, go, "Man, glorify God! Like, I mean, why does God need to be glorified? You know what I mean?" Like, why is he? I think the easy answer is that, um, you know, well, if God's God, um, he should be the chief goal of our affection for sure. I mean, he he should be all that, you know. And I think about it too, like um, the reason why God calls us to glorify him is because he's the ultimate good. So uh, I was actually talking to a young man this week and uh, we were going over and I, and I asked him like, well, why do you think it, you feel so bummed out like after you view pornography? Mm-hmm. And uh, after talking to him for a while, he says, well, you know, I, I think the major reason why I feel bummed out is because it's not that great. You know, when you finish, like when you're looking at it and when you're engaging, it feels like the best. And then the second it's over, you feel like kind of used, you feel kind of shameful uh, and you realize, man, that wasn't worth it at all. And I was like, the reason why it feels like that is because you just glorified an unworthy object, meaning I've just shown porn that it's beautiful and excellent. I've shown its value. And when I get to the end, I realize that it's kind of a letdown. It's just like um, if you have a, a excited for a movie that's going to come out and you want to go see it you know, with your friends and you go out and you're, you have these huge expectations for this movie and you watch it and then it lets you down. Mm-hmm. The reason why it feels such like a bummer is because you expected that thing to be as glorious as you thought it was. And when you reach the end, you realize that it was just kind of a bummer. So pornography and uh, other relationships and things like that, the reason why they don't satisfy us is because they're not worthy objects of glory. They don't actually satisfy us. And I think C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, A Reflection on Psalms, really, um, he nailed this one down in in a great way, where he talks about how, uh, as a non-Christian, he always struggled with the idea of people always talking about, you know, glorifying God, praising God. And he asked the question, you know, is God like some sort of insecure middle-aged woman who needs someone to like always just, you know, throw, you know, right. approval on him and things like that? Like, what's going on here? And and then he realized walking outside, he says, people are glorifying and praising things all the time. You know, you have uh, boyfriends telling their girlfriends how awesome they are. You have people mm-hmm. telling ta- telling each other how amazing a movie is. You got people talking about their, their favorite sports, their favorite music. You know, people are praising and worshiping and glorifying things all the stinking time and his point at the end was it only stands to reason that the better the object the more pleasurable the glorification of that object is so i mean the better the movie 
the better it is to actually share in it with someone else and to actually praise that movie. And he says that that praise is actually the fulfillment of your joy in that object. And he said, so if God logically is the best, most amazing, most glorious, most incredible being in this entire universe, then to fully praise and glorify him should be the fullness of joy, which I think is what John Piper was saying in his quote. Yeah, it's, it's so cool when you put it that way. That uh, I love how you put it in the way of watching the movie. And that, you know, it's, uh, you know, when we see that object and we, and we get, you know, the, the joy that we have in watching it, you're, you're saying becomes the, the fulfill, you know, the fulfillment of that is that pleasure that we have. And that's awesome. You know, and, you know, getting back on the email, you know, it, it's like the person who emailed is, is a seasoned saint. I mean, they, they know the word, they know the, the Lord and everything like that, but it becomes difficult, obviously, from the email where, People don't grab, um, you know, what it looks like to glorify God. You know, we're in, and that's why I like the Watson paper, you know, his write-up, because he deals with that, those issues of adoration and subjection and um, that kind of issue that helps us to understand the relational part of it. Um, even though some people might think like, hey, how do you actually, I mean, how do you give God glory in sex, you know, how does that work? Like, you know, how does my motivation not be to get away from sexual immorality? Why, how can it, how can it not be my wife or my kids or those other things? Because those things are, first of all, they're seen, you know, they can be touched and felt, you know, the ramifications are for bad actions are right there, you know? So it's like they kind of see everything and go, man, you know, I'm messing up and this is what I'm doing. Where God seems kind of, you know, having God, be, the glory of God, you know, be first on my mind is becomes almost ethereal, almost becomes fictional, you know, I think for people. Yeah, and uh, I think we got to go back to 1 Corinthians 10.31, which was one of our major passages in our video. Uh, Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, which sounds like such a weird statement. I don't think many people, when they sit down before a meal, are like, man, you know, this food, I'm going to eat this thing, and it's going to glorify God so good. You know, like this ice cream sundae is just going to bring untold amounts of glory to the presence of the Lord. Like, nobody really thinks that way. Yeah. But what Paul's talking about when he talks about 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 31, about uh, doing all things to the glory of God, what he's really speaking of is if God truly is a pleasurable being, then the way I glorify him is I enjoy the thing that he's given me and I simply thank him. It's what Hebrews uh, chapter 13 actually calls the sacrifice of praise. So when I'm enjoying intimacy with my spouse, the beautiful thing for a Christian is it's not like I have to get into this weird mental gymnastics where I'm like, man, am I thinking about God enough or like too much or not enough? Or like, am I thinking about my wife? You know, it doesn't have to be that way. It's actually just really beautifully just simply enjoying her and reminding myself that, man, like, God gave me this marriage. He gave me this amazing woman. He created sex. He made it feel so incredible. Uh, and that's and that's what I'm always thinking of. And when my mind's on that, when my mind's on thinking about the beauty and glory of God, it makes it a lot easier for me to not serve self, to me not going into the bed thinking about, man, what could I get out of this? What 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 is my wife going to do for me that's going to make me feel good? You see, when I'm when I'm spending all my time focusing on just how awesome God is and how pleasurable He is, 
the thing is, is that God's nature is that of giving. And so it will actually motivate me to reflect one of his major characteristics, and that is love doesn't seek its own. It will, it will, it will make me find my pleasure in giving and glorifying God in my spouse as opposed to receiving and glorifying myself, honoring myself. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I, I see too that, you know, in my brain, when I think of glorifying God, you know, with my spouse uh, of 22 years, I think, um, you know, I think of, you know, obviously that value kind of thing is how do I value God into my into my intimacy? And one of the ways is to be thankful, you know, because God is the creator of me. And I think that's an important thing. It's like if 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 we don't believe that God is the creator, you know, or you know, or we we are shifty on that subject, then it's hard to glorify Him. Um, because the Bible specifically tells us that he should receive glory as the creator, you know, and, um, and the Bible even says we should no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who gave his life for us, you know? So it's like, if my, if I'm not thinking theologically square on God being the creator of all, um, you know, then it's it becomes hard for me to glorify him too. And if I if I'm not thinking of Jesus being who he said he was, um, the person who uh, the God man who died for me, then I'm not going to be thinking uh, I can't really think properly when it comes to glorifying God either. You know, because the passage, that passage is so clear to me. I can't remember exactly the, the, the place of it, but it talks about no longer living for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And, um, you know, and, and it's cool because it says it's no longer living for ourselves. And think of sex now. Mm-hmm. Sex is no longer living for ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, which already is so different from our culture. So much, I mean, of how we're raised as, as guys, you know. And so I'm no longer living for myself. Sex is no longer about myself. But now it is it is through the the love of Christ for me that I experience sex. It's through the thankfulness of that sacrifice that I look at the lens of sex now, which to a lot of people, that's really bizarre. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think a lot of people get creeped out by that. A little bit. <laughs> but, you know, they, they really shouldn't. You know, uh, just in what you were saying, uh, the, the relationship that actually came most up in my mind is the relationship that I have to my earthly parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, growing up, you know, I had very loving parents and they gave me a lot of things. And I realized how easy it is to slip into entitlement. Of instead of having a heart of thanksgiving, having a heart of, I deserve this, you know, they, they should give me these things. And what it essentially does is, is it starts to erode away my relationship with my parents where I just see them as, uh, you know, the bank or I see them as uh, the people who own my house, you know, as opposed to having an actual loving relationship with them. Um, but when I start giving them thanks for it, what I'm doing is I'm realizing that they didn't have to do this for me. They're not doing this because they, they want to uh, hold it over my head. They're doing it out of the graciousness of their heart, and I want to be thankful. And, and God is the same way. He's not demanding us to glorify him because uh, if, if we don't, you know, he's going he's gonna to hate us and, and give us, like, uh, the measles or something like that. Uh, what, what he's saying is I want you to glorify me because I want you to enjoy our relationship in all things. 
You know, if I don't give thanksgiving uh, to my wife if she makes me dinner, then I'll enjoy the dinner in and of itself and our relationship will not grow. But if I give her thanksgiving, then I get to enjoy the love that I have with her inside of the meal that I eat. And the same thing is true with God. It's an enjoyment, or it's a relational enjoyment that comes through giving thanks. Mm, and that's that's awesome. Because, you know, a lot of people, again, can't see God and they kind of go, well, man, I, I, I struggle with that relational aspect of this idea. You know, is how do I give God glory when I don't see him? Um, you know, I can be affectionate towards my wife. I can be affectionate towards my kids. I can be in uh, subjection to other people. But how can I to God, mm. you know? And so I think there's that there's there's that kind of shut off mm. in people where yeah. they kind of go, hmm, I, I just don't know how that works, mm. you know? Yeah, and with God, the, the interesting thing is the only way to do this is by faith. Mm. You know, uh, we walk by faith, not by sight is what the Bible says. Uh, and, and an understanding of what faith is when they're talking about it, faith is not just saying, you know, well, I can't see God, so, you know, I just, I just trust and, and, and that's it. I'm going to have this kind of weird relationship with them. What, what, what faith really at its core is talking about is it's a, an acceptance of a truth that builds on a relationship. And it's true in every relationship. Uh, take the love that you have for your spouse or your kids or your mom or your dad or your friends or whatever. That love can't always be felt. That love, that person can't always be seen. So right now, when I can't see my wife, I love her by faith, not by sight. I'm not looking at her this moment. I'm not talking to her this moment. But I know I love her uh, because that, that love is inside of my heart. I trust it. I accept that fact uh, based on our relationship together. So with God, really what we're trying to do is is I'm thanking him and I'm loving him and I'm caring for him, but I'm doing it based solely on faith, which can be kind of difficult. Uh, and the thing that is going to fight our faith is honestly my, our emotions. You know, maybe um, today when I'm driving home from work, I might get cut off and, you know, I might start getting angry or frustrated or, you know, uh, maybe uh, I'll think about some fight that me and my wife had or something like that. And see, the, the faith that I have in our love is going to start fading the more I mentally dwell on those things. But if I mentally exercise myself to think about the goodness, the, the greatness of our, our marriage, the beauty that's in her, the love that we have for one another, if I do that, that's going to strengthen, it's going to bolster, it's going to uh, empower the love that I have, which is by faith, so that when I come home, I don't just, you know, dump all my problems and emotions on her. Uh, same thing is true with God. Sometimes you're going to be in a time with God where he's going to feel very distant. It's going to be difficult for you to adore and love him. But it's not always like that for a Christian. There, I think no matter where you are in your Christian life, you could definitely think back to times where God was very near and you were very passionate about him and you had a great joy in him. And there was great, uh, you know, whether it's in a worship song or in a sermon, a time where you just were really, really near to the Lord. Uh, and the thing that you have to do is you need to mentally focus on those things and remind yourself of the goodness of God so that you can kind of get through the lull and, and make it to the part where you're going to be close to him again because uh, he hasn't moved anywhere, you know. He's, uh, he's testing and tempering your faith, which is the uh, essential part of having a relationship with him. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, you know, I think that, 
you know, you know, w- when people come to us and they always want to f- know like how to get off of um, pornography or things like that, we're always going to ask them like, Hey, what is your motivation for this type of stuff? Like, why do you want to stop? You know, why do you want to get off? Um, because when you value, when you don't value God and say you value something else, you know, the problem is, is that something else is, 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 is unfortunately finite and therefore it is vulnerable to the same things that you have struggled with yourself and so it's not really a bedrock of truth or stability um so say i want to get off because it's my wife you know um you know, I, I, you know, she's the reason for it. Then I find that, you know, it might work for a time. It might work a little bit, but I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I'll start justifying actions to go back to it because I see her own failures, you know, and she becomes less than, than maybe what she was when I really, when I started to want to get off. Um, you know, I always think of Psalm four that says, why do you, why do you trust in worthless idols? You know, and it's kind of God's, um, you know, him dropping a bomb, if you will, on the people of Israel, just saying to them, why do you continue to go to these, you know, false, worthless idols and not come to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's it. We need, we need a source, something that's much more stable and strong and perfect and powerful, too. Uh, someone who can actually give me power. And this is what the Christian life promises, is that we actually we actually experience something in a relationship with the true and living God. And that is power. Mm-hmm. And that is a joyful, holy life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, so trusting in those things just is not going to work. Yeah, absolutely not. And what I found in my life is uh, the motivator of fear is a powerful one, but it's not strong enough to change the heart. So like an example of, uh, any of us who have jobs or go to school or anything like that, we know, we understand a relationship built on fear. Why do I do good things in my work? Well, I don't want to get fired. You know, I want a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a, that's a relationship based on fear. And all that's really going to do is it's going to motivate you to work just hard enough to get your paycheck or to not get fired. It's not going to actually change your heart towards your work, if that makes sense. Um, so no, no matter how long you work there, no matter how much you do, it's not going to make you think, Oh man, I really love, uh, you know, digging holes or cutting doors or, you know, you're never going to come to that point, but you do it because you want a paycheck. That's what you're doing it for. But that type of, type of relationship is never going to actually alter your heart. The only relationship that could actually alter your heart is if you do something for someone that you genuinely love and care about. Uh, those of you guys who are parents will understand that, uh, husbands will understand that, or even if you've just had someone in your life that you really looked up to or respected, you always want to go above and beyond for people like that. And uh, beyond that, uh, we're always talking about building that relationship. If you don't have a motivation for glorifying God, your relationship with God is going to suck. You know, and I think about it with my wife. You know, if me and her, if I did something wrong, which I do often, um, but if I do something wrong and I need forgiveness before her, is it really going to benefit my relationship if when she asked me, like, hey, why do you want me to forgive you? Or why do you want to change? And I was like, well, honey, you know, I, I really like it when you put out for me sexually. And I think that this is the best way to do that. 
you know, that's not going to strengthen our relationship. That's probably going to get her to, to smack me or something like that. The only right answer is I say, well, I love you. You know, I adore you. I, I respect you. I want to I wanna serve you in this way because you're my wife. You're my spouse. Uh, and so we can understand it from that perspective. And this is exactly what God says about that type of service. The type of service where you'd say, you know, like, uh, well, I'm doing this because I don't want to go to hell or because I don't want God to, to strike me with lightning or something like that. This is how God views that. This is Isaiah 64, and this is in verse 6. He says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. And that word filthy rags in the Hebrew actually means menstrual cloth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like a used tampon to God. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Why? Because it's not that what they were doing was wrong. It's the heart behind it that offended God. And so if I want to deepen my intimacy with the Lord, I better have a right heart towards it. And it can't be, well, God, you know, I, I love you, I care about you, but I love my marriage a little more. And that's my reasoning for doing this. Or, oh, I really want to preserve my job. Or, oh, man, I really want to, you know, help my family or be a better uh, role model for my kids. All those are great, noble motivations, but they're not going to increase your intimacy with God. They're like filthy rags before him. Mm, that's that's good, man. You know, it and it... You know, hopefully, you know, for those that are listening to this, you know, you're going, hey, you know, okay, I'm getting the idea that, you know, I need a, I need to value God, you know. And when you start thinking about that and you start going, hey, I'm going to value God, like I want that to be the utmost goal of my heart here is how can I value God? Um, you know, then what happens is you'll see a lot of what Thomas Watson talks about happening in your life, meaning, um, you'll, you'll be confessing sin, um, you know, because you'll, you'll see even sin as a way of valuing the creator. Um, cause you're no longer hiding. You're no longer in fear of man. And usually that's why we're not confessing anyways, because usually we have a, a fear of man in our life. And so, you know, we don't want to confess, but when we do confess, it's because we something has finally penetrated our heart where we're no longer fearing man, you know. So some people some people confess and they finally confess because they you know they're kind of like forced into confession. They have to do it. You know, they got a gun to their head, so they're gonna confess something, you know. And it's like, but the, there's a, there's now a greater fear of man. It's the fear of the gun, you know, that becomes like the motivating factor of confession. And I think a lot of people in their Christian life, that's how they kind of have lived for a long time. It's like it's like they will confess, but it's like it's kind of if the gun's pointing, you know, their way, then they kind of go, okay, now I'll get over the hump of fearing man, you know, but it's it's really not in a good way because it's now by the gun. You know what I mean? Instead of instead of looking at it in a different way of you know where you're you're looking at you know valuing God and your and your and when you have that relationship with God now all of a sudden you're no longer fearing man anymore because your eyes are focused on a creator a transcendent creator a creator who can who is he has he has a wrath against sin because his nature is holy. And so because of that, you're kind of going, whoa, you know, God can just boom if he wanted to, I guess. He's God, you know, and he's certainly righteous to do that. You know, so you start getting your mindset in more of a uh, in a proverb chapter one kind of mentality where you start fearing God, Mm. you know, and then that becomes 
like it says in the proverb, the beginning of all wisdom. Then you start actually being able to walk in a proper way because you see God in a proper way now. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think. Like It's like you can't glorify God if you don't see God in a proper way. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of, if, if God is not seen in a proper way, how can you glorify him in confession? You never can, you know, because you never will, mm-hmm. you know. Um, your, your confessions will even be one of, you know, just, just fearing man or fearing, fearing what man can do, mm-hmm. you know, instead of fearing God. Mm-hmm. Cause when you start fearing God, then confession becomes something where you're like, I don't even care what man thinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm more, I'm more concerned about how God sees me. Mm-hmm. And since God, his attribute is holiness, you know, everything in our heart is kind of triggered by that. Everything in our heart is triggered by his holiness, his holy character, mm-hmm. you know. And that's what creates in our hearts the desire to confess mm-hmm. and, and to glorify him. It's because he is the creator, not just the creator, but he's a holy creator. Mm-hmm. So he has a holy character, mm-hmm. um, and so does that make some sense of how yeah. theologically kind of I think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that has to be 100% true. And I think the major way to clean out our false perceptions of God is uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, talking about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So this is speaking of Jesus, and it says it's his, the brightness of God's glory is found in Jesus. So I, I think the, the major problem that I have with seeing God in the right way is uh, I, I tend to think of him like, you know, I tend to project on him. You know, I project my dad on him. Or I project uh, a boss on him, or I project uh, maybe a bad relationship on God. I, I, I'm taking all these images uh, of who God is, of who I think God is, and I'm projecting them on God. And the Son came. It says Jesus came to demolish that. It says in John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed God to us. He has shown us what God is actually like. So if I want to know what God is actually like, I need to kind of throw away all the things I think I know about him. And I need to start getting my information from the source itself. I need to start reading about Jesus. I need to start seeing, like, what, what kind of man is he? You know, how does he look at my sin? When I blow it, how does he see me? You know, I need to go to John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. How does Jesus see me when I'm caught in sin? Oh, he, he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, how does, how does Jesus look at the poor and the needy? You know, he, he feeds them, he clothes them, he heals them, he takes care of them. You see, so the more I study the brightness of the glory of God, the more I see the beauty of, of, of God inside of Jesus Christ, the more I start to kind of demolish these false views of God. And when I start seeing him right for who he actually is, then I can start actually loving him. Yeah, and that's so cool because when I talk about the holiness of God kind of being the regulator on our hearts, it's like sometimes we think of God as like a legal system. You know, and we come to him and we kind of go, man, you know, God's holy, God's creator, he's, he's all that. But it's almost like there's just, he's, he's the legal system that just sets in motion, you know, legality, you know. And, um, and so it kind of creates a distance. None of us have a relationship with a court, 
You know what I mean? We don't have a relationship with it. Or you hope you don't. You know what I mean? Because not a loving one. Yeah, <laughs> not a loving one, right. Yeah, but you know, through Christ who reveals the Father, then we get an opportunity to see you know, the love, the relational aspect. And that's what becomes how we glorify God is we, we see his value, mm-hmm. the incredible value of Jesus, mm-hmm. that, that, that he is the expressed image of the invisible God, mm-hmm. you know, and I can, I can see that. He lived in a moment in time, mm-hmm. you know, people were able to touch him. People were able to talk to him, mm-hmm. you know, and... And he promises to live in the believer. Um, and so there's that relational component that's important too, because I think that's a, a kind of that balance. You know, nothing's wrong with seeing God as a legal kind of, you know, a court. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's true. Mm-hmm. And there's scriptures that certainly we can point to, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter uh, 4. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly give us the idea that there's thrones and seats and judgments and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But when you, if you just if you just had that alone, we might think of it as like, yeah, who does have a relationship? How can you value a court system and and kind of grow close to it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's kind of tough. Yeah, I, I think about it like you know like you know the president almost. It's like how how does his wife see him? It's like, well, yeah, to to her, she is the first lady, but he's still the president. You know, he still has authority uh, over this nation and authority Mm -hmm. over her, but she sees him as her husband first. So she already has a loving relationship with him, a foundation of love uh, with him, and that enables her to be able to see him as a president in the right context. And the Mm -hmm. same thing is true with God. If I just see him as some some dictator up in heaven who does as he wills, and that's so much of the fear that we get as Christians, like, man, God does what he wills. Oh, my gosh. You know, how many times from the pulpit have you ever heard someone say, you know, don't pray for patience, you know, because God will give it to you. You know, you get this picture of this vindictive God who just wants to mess up your life. It's like, you know, the, the reason why you're seeing it that way is because ultimate authority in the hands of someone beautiful is the best good. Yeah. But ultimate authority in the tyrant is the best evil. So when we see God as a, as a beautiful, loving, amazing, gentle person that he is, then all of a sudden the fact that he has ultimate power and authority and he rules and reigns and has eyes like the flame of fire and he sits on a throne and he does as he pleases. See, those things for me is a huge comfort you know, because I know the man, I know the person who is above all things. I know the one who is sovereign and it gives me comfort and, and the ability to live my life knowing, uh, knowing true peace in the intimacy of Jesus Christ. So uh, for me, like seeing God's authority and power is, is an amazing thing. It's part of his glory. I can't ignore it, but I need to see it in the right context. Yeah, so when you think of glory, I will wrap up the podcast, but when you think of glorifying God, you know, I would suggest that you start with thinking it as value. I mean, wouldn't you say so? Yeah. Start thinking of value. Like how to, instead of thinking so much glory, but think of like valuing something or someone. And then, and then really, number two, I would say it is you, you really need to learn about God. Uh, uh, you know, as a Christian, you have to learn about the Christian God. And I don't know any short way of that other than reading and studying the scriptures. Um, you know, so that it develops your understanding of God. 
because that's that's what it's about. I mean, as you grow in your understanding of the Word of God, man, all of a sudden you are going to be blown away. Um, and isn't that what has happened to us? I mean, we get blown away by Christ, by Jesus. Mm. And we go, wow, man, that's amazing that he would do that. And we start understanding God. And, and so when we think of glorifying God, we we see it in the right way. You know, we see him in the right way mm-hmm. um, where we're not going, okay, I'm going to force myself to glorify <laughs> God because I know it's the right thing to do, but I, I think he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but you know, when I was watching, you watch debates sometimes and I get into seasons where I watch more than other seasons, you know, and, but I was watching one with Lawrence Krauss. Um, and he's, I don't know what his speciality is. Do you know he's a what? physicist? He's a physicist. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like when, when he, he always kept coming up to bringing up, you know, you know, God and, and the Canaanites and wiping out the Canaanites and, you know, and, and the vindictiveness of God, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the, the, um, um, William Lane Craig was the person that he was debating and you guys can go on um, and Google it, William Lane Craig and Lawrence Krauss and you can f- see the debate yourself. But I, you know, I thought, you know, I thought William Lane Craig was kind of, he kind of chickened out of probably the better answer. You know, I think he could have easily just said, you know, well, Lawrence, the God of the Bible is God. <laughs> like, do you understand that? Like he is, he is God. And as God, God can do what God does. He's always working for the betterment of himself. And that is the betterment of everything. And that's the God of the Bible. I mean, you can reject it. You can say, hey, I don't want that, you know. Um, but that's that's our choice, you know. Um yeah, but instead William Lane Craig took it a different whole kind of way. Yeah, you know, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think yeah, the bedrock of this is um, to always see things in that relational sense uh, with God. You know, when I'm reading His Bible, am I reading it like um, a history book? You know, like some textbook from school, or am I reading it like I would read uh, a biography of a loved one? You know, someone that I care about deeply. Uh, so when I'm reading the Bible, am I looking at it as a way to get to know God better, who I love? You know, when I'm praising Him, and am I praising Him the same way I sing lyrics in the car, you know, to like artists that I don't really care about, or do I see praising Him as truly like, man, like I know Jesus saved my soul, I know grace is amazing, I know that His love is beautiful, you know. So starting to to mentally think and work on seeing God's glory everywhere, and and actually that's. That's actually part of it, and, and me and Bo talked in earlier parts about how the second part is you got to pray and wait on the Lord to actually change your heart. In Psalm 51, David, after he committed his sin with Bathsheba, this is what he prays to God. He says um, in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, and the idea of the heart in the New Test, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the seat of our deepest, most passionate desires. And David realized my desires are wrong. If my desires were correct, I probably wouldn't have had sex with a married girl. 
and I probably wouldn't have killed her husband, you know, because God obviously wouldn't have wanted that. So he realized, man, my desires are so mixed up. I want my will, not God's will. And that's why I did what I did. So he says, God, I want right desires. I want to seek your glory. And then he says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. You want to comment on that one real quick? Yeah, I mean, I always just think, uh, you know, the whole issue of joy is, you know, I mean, if we don't have joy in God, that's what leads us to do whatever we're going to do, you know. Um, you know, again, it's like G- God's, the understanding God is the regulate, it regulates me. It's it's what helps me go, oh, man, you know, I have joy in God. I enjoy the relational aspects that I have with God and to know that he is the legal system of the world mm-hmm. and to be secure in that. Because um, if I don't have that joy, then, of course, I'm going to click on something. Of course, I'm going to go to something else. But when I find joy or relational joy, like I have a relational joy in my spouse. Mm-hmm. I've known her since I was a kid. I've been around her forever. You know, I just love being around my wife. Mm-hmm. So it's like I... You know, that is that is awesome because that that regulates something in my life. It regulates me going, oh, well, I, you know, I don't want to go home with like another girl tonight. Hmm. Well, why? Because I have extreme joy in Sylvia. So restoring to me the joy of my salvation, David finally gets it. You know, hmm. he finally gets it like, oh, my gosh, like the problem is, is I lost the joy I had in my in my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to Bathsheba. So when he was looking out over that lattice and saw that, that girl bathing, you know, the, the fight, the battle with sin was actually a battle for joy. Mm-hmm. The joy that was going to grab his attention. Was it going to be uh, sexual joy that was going to win the day? Or was it going to be God joy? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That was going to win the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's beautiful in the psalm that David comes back and he starts praying for it. He realizes I can't, I can't just create joy. You know, you can't just be like I'm going to be happy in God. Click. You know, like that right. doesn't work that way. He realizes, man, unless the spirit of God doesn't move in me, like like you mentioned before, Bo, the the power of God, God gives me the power to actually legitimately change. And this is the power that David is seeking, and it's the power that we should seek too. Yeah. Well, we're going to end our first podcast. We thank you guys for listening. This is Bo. And Peter. With Running Light Ministries. And Psalm 36, verse 8 says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Mm